we're just we're laying a biblical narrative uh, and explaining from the scripture what is the necessity of the day of the Lord? Why does the Lord use them um, historically and the, the one to come, the great and terrible day of the Lord? We're, we're sort of just giving the broad uh, thoughts on uh, this concept of the day of the Lord, why it's important. And, um, and what we're coming to find out is that the way the Lord has structured things in, in the biblical narrative and in human history it revolves around promises that he's made, that he intends to keep, and one of the ways that he um, intervenes in the course of human affairs are these times, these seasons that he calls the days, or a day of the Lord. And there's been historic days of the Lord that all point to a final day of the Lord. And And the scripture tells us that's the day in which the Lord Jesus returns and he will uh, drive off uh, Antichrist, this, this uh, demonized leader who will be trying to gather the nations to himself, to, to gain the worship of the nations. Jesus is coming to end a massive military conflict that has deep spiritual roots. And uh, the spiritual root system is, at, at the core, it's a satanic deal where Satan himself, he wants the worship of the nations. And, and the Lord's coming to end that. The Lord is coming to end Satan's imposition upon the nations. Amen. I'm excited about that. I'm glad about the day that Satan will be bound up and then further the, the day will he'll, will, where he'll be destroyed. You know, the scripture describes two days of his massive defeat still in our future, still in our future. It's kind of like this. The decisive battle has been won at the cross, and now there's a couple cleanup battles that will end satanic influence upon the nations forever. And our Lord Jesus is the one that's coming to do that. He's the victor. Amen. He's the victor. So when we think about end of the age, the day of the Lord, uh, the judgments of God, all these things, what we've got to do is we've got to see them in a storyline rather than just study them in isolation in, in terms of like biblical principle. And the reason why is because if you study just the biblical principles in isolation, you don't get the broad picture. And what's kind of happened, I think, in some teaching uh, that's, that's happening in the church now is that people are focusing on isolated topics without considering the broad uh, story of the Bible, and then what they'll do is they'll misapply the truths of specific topics because they don't see it, how it fits in the larger uh, scheme of things. So what we're doing is we're talking about the broad picture and then identifying how the day of the Lord fits in that broad, in that broad picture and why. And so, um, just quickly on your outline, the review, everything I just said fits in A under Roman numeral one. There is a cohesive biblical narrative that requires the activity of the day of the Lord in order to bring to pass God's promises, fulfilling his covenants to Israel. There's, there's a biblical story that God is unfolding and 
Guys, we're part of it. We're part of this thing. It's not separate from us or distant. We're part of that. Uh, we're believers in Jesus, the Messiah, and we're part of this unfolding story. And so we need to be aware of the activity of the Lord and what he's doing, what he's about. I, uh, you know, I've said before, but when I got saved, I, didn't, I wasn't thinking I was joining a king who was coming to reign I was just trying to get my, like, get out of hell free card. Like, how do I not go to hell? Because I don't want to go there. Like, that was about it. I just knew there's heaven and hell, and I don't want to go to hell. It's a bad place. How do I get out of that? I had no idea that there was this broader narrative. There's a king coming to rule the nations. And so when I said yes to Jesus, I was actually saying yes, not just to his lordship in my life. I was saying yes to his lordship Across the nations of the earth. Well, that's a bigger little deal. That's a much bigger story. You know, the thing about it is, and and I I think we should recognize that we have a personal relationship with this king. But if our whole Christianity is dialed into my personal relationship with Jesus, then we don't understand. There's a much grander storyline. We're like out. We, We don't actually know what he's about. Like he's coming to reign. He's coming to reign. We just uh, we finished a series of song of Sol- on Song of Solomon uh, about a month ago, and you know it's it's the bride in Song of Solomon where in chapter two she's been so uh, just wooed by who he is and how much he loves her and and how beautiful he is, and then he shows up and he's like, "I'm a warrior too," and she's in shock, and she's so shocked she goes, "Go away and do your warrior stuff, and come back when you want to." You know, be intimate and, and, and touch my heart again. And she can't even deal with who he is as a warrior. Listen, I think that's where a lot of us are in the church. Can you deal with Jesus, the Savior, the shepherd, the bridegroom? Can you deal with him as the warrior king? And we've got to because guess what? He's not, uh, you know, half Jesus. He's not going to show up as half Jesus, the half that we like, <laughs> you know, He's going to show up as all Jesus, who he is as bridegroom, who he is as king, and who he is as judge. He's showing up as all of that. And so we got to get around who he is. So there's this narrative. It's broad. He's going to come back to fulfill covenants. B, I explain a very simple definition. A day of the Lord's a day or a season that God chooses to release judgment, to manifest his glory. That's such a simple definition. See, last week we touched three key things God does, how he uses days of the Lord. A, to display his nature. Two, to A, two, C. One, two, three. One, to display his nature. Two, to carry out his uh, covenant promises to Israel. Three, to bring glory to Jesus. And then what we did last week was we dialed in on the covenant that God made with Abram and, uh, and how From that covenant, we could see that God is going to protect Israel. He promised Abram that he'd make a nation out of him. He promised him that he would give him certain lands. He made a covenant with him. And God 
walked through the covenantal sacrifice while Abram was asleep under the presence of the Lord. The Lord puts Abram asleep and God walks through the covenantal sacrifice. And in other words, God's saying, I'm the one that's going to carry this out. I'm making a promise to you, Abram, to make a nation out of you that, that will be as, as many as the stars of the sky. And I'm going to bless the nations through you, Abram. And, and here's the deal. I'm making a promise and I'm sealing it with a covenant and you can't stop this. Nobody can stop this, is the idea. God's going to do it. And so when we see God coming in judgment in the Old Testament, he's judging nations, he's protecting his covenant. And when we see God bringing correction and judging Israel, he's protecting his covenant. And that's all spelled out in the, in the Old Testament. He told Israel, he goes, if you, if you obey and you hearken unto me and my word, you'll be blessed in the land. But if you don't, Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to bring these, these judgments, in, in other words, to correct you, to bring you back into the bonds of the covenant. So that's what we talked about last week. Now, this week, I want to just trace Jesus. I want to look at Jesus identified from Genesis. We're not going to touch every book of the Bible, but I'm going to take it from Genesis to Revelation. And I want to touch the issue of Jesus as the warrior, as the victor, as the one who's going to do uh, the, the, uh, the thing that God promised to do, to destroy the enemies of the people of God. I want to sort of lay the narrative out again, but this time I want to I focus on the person of Jesus and, and how he's actually been in the picture since Genesis. This man who's coming as this victorious warrior. He's been in the picture since Genesis. All right, let's just look at this. Roman numeral two, Jesus, the seed of Abraham. And some of the stuff we touched last week, but I want to bring it into more clarity today. And, uh, and the, the question we're answering is, why the day of the Lord again? Why does God do this? Next week, we're going to talk about the practical application of how then shall we live. This week, I'm still laying out the story for us of how it works in the broader uh, narrative of the Bible. Okay, Roman numeral two, Jesus, the seed of Abram, Abraham. First, we've got to start with what God said to, to Adam and Eve and really what he said to Lucifer. Genesis 3.15 he said, I will put enmity between you. He's speaking actually to Lucifer. I will put enmity, enmity between you and the woman, the woman being Eve, and between your offspring, talking about Satan's offspring, and hers. And he will crush your head. And you will strike his heel." That's the New International Version. The New King James, the New American Standard say, you're talking about the woman's seed. It will be between the seed of this woman and you, Lucifer. Now, if you want a theological term, this is called the Proto-Evangelium. First time the gospel was ever preached in the Bible. Proto-Evangelium. Throw that out at lunch today. Yeah, we were, this morning we were just learning about the Proto-Evangelium. <clears throat> you'll, just, you'll just sound like huge. I mean, that's like however many, five, six uh, syllables. 
Proto-evangelium. Proto-evangelium. Seven. Seven syllables. But what it means is simply this. The first time the gospel was ever preached in the Bible. Proto, the, the first or before. Evangelium. It's, it's, it's this before proclamation of the good news. Now, that doesn't seem like such good news because it's right there in the middle of the fall and you got this whole thing where God's addressing Lucifer. But I, I want you to sort of get your mind around the scene. The Garden of Eden, God's been enjoying perfect fellowship with our first parents, Adam and Eve. Everything's great. Lucifer shows up in a, in, as a serpent. He's talking. I always wondered why it didn't tip Eve off when a snake began to talk to her. My guess is a lot of animals were talking in the garden. Honestly. Before the curse hit, that thing was way different. I mean, that would have been my first point. The snake's talking like, don't mess with that snake. It's weird. But probably there were a lot of animals that were talking. I don't know, just a guess. All right, don't make that the doctrine. Let's, let's actually do this the Bible. But here's the point. The snake's talking to her. Eat the tree. You're going to get knowledge. You're not going to die. Uh, look at it. It's good. It's going gonna, it's gonna to make you wise. It's going to taste good. You're going to like this. And there's one rule God gives in the garden. He goes, enjoy yourself and don't eat that tree. Enjoy yourself and don't eat that tree. I mean, that's it. One rule. One boundary. And uh, the, the serpent, Lucifer, in the form of the serpent, he comes, he deceives Adam and Eve, they, they take and eat, and, um, and then this curse unfolds. God comes and says, where are you? That's the first bad thing. When, when they've never had a separation and intimacy, and God shows up, and he goes, why are y'all hiding? Something has changed here. I mean, the Lord already knows, but I just, I, I, I've thought about this moment many times. Can you imagine the instant that Adam eats the, eats the fruit and man, the, the bottom falls out of his spirituality. His spiritual death creeps over his spirit. He starts feeling shame. I mean, you know what I'm saying? He starts feeling condemnation. Fear hits them for the very first time. Can you imagine that the way that thing just cascades over their spirit and their soul and all of a sudden there's this obvious separation between them and God. They go and hide. They make uh, clothes for themselves. And so then the Lord shows up and he gives some, some directives. He says, what happened here? And they blame each other until finally they blame the devil. And then the Lord goes, okay, here you go, serpent. Here's the deal. And he gives us the proto-evangelium. He says, I'm putting enmity between you and this woman, between your seed, your offspring, and hers. So what he's identifying is there's a man that will come who is going to be at odds with Lucifer and with Lucifer's offspring. Now commentators, they'll go different directions on what Lucifer's offspring equals, I think it's talking about Antichrist. And I'll show you why in a minute. But I believe it's talking about Antichrist. Lucifer's seed. And then he says this. And he, the offspring of this woman, will crush your head. Wow. 
What a decisive thought. It's, an, it's, the, it's the end of the story. God gives it from the beginning in the garden. He will crush you, devil. Come on. Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. Yes, he did. He was the one that God was talking about. This seed that would crush Satan. And, and then he says, and you, will, you, Satan, will bruise his heel. Speaking of the cross. So we have this interesting covenantal promise from God in place by the third chapter of the Bible. And to me, the, the, the shock of it is this, that right at the get-go, God describes that there's a human coming, a seed from this woman. There's a human coming who will destroy Lucifer, the archangel. That's a big deal. If you're Lucifer at that point, what are you thinking? I'm going to kill him before he kills me. Right? Satan doesn't come except for to steal, kill, and destroy. And the main one he's trying to steal, kill, and destroy is that seed. That's who, he was, who he's been going after. He's been going after that seed, promise of the woman. All right, so we have this now in place. There's a man coming. That man is going to ultimately destroy Satan. He's going to destroy Lucifer. What an amazing thought. This is the biblical narrative. All right, and then we fast forward to Abraham, which we spent a lot of time on last week, so I'll just kind of read through it quickly. Genesis 26, it's one of three or four times the Lord describes this promise that he makes to Abraham. He says, I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, massive nation, and these lands. There's this promise, the land and this nation, okay? And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed There we have Galatians 3, which Paul says that this promise to Abraham and his seed specifically refers to Christ. Now, to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. There it is again. Adam, there's a seed coming through Adam and Eve, a man that's going to destroy Lucifer. And here we have it again, a seed who is coming through Abram. Now what's happening, it's this, here's how the story is, it's the broad spectrum. There's coming a man out of humanity through the the seed of Adam and Eve. Now we're going to get it narrow. He's coming out of Israel. It's a Jewish man. It's a Jewish man. And that Jewish man is going to bless All the nations of the earth. Now, of course, the the gospel story of salvation is a blessing to all the nations of the earth. But that's not the finality. The finality, when you put the promise to Abraham with the promise to Adam, is that this Jewish man is not only going to purchase redemption for humankind, this Jewish man is also going to destroy the devil. He's going to drive the usurper, Satan. He's going to drive him off the earth. He's going to destroy him. A Jewish man. Well, if I'm the devil, guess who I'm going to hate? 
the Jews, because now I know my enemy is not just every single human, though I hate them all if I'm the devil, because I just, that's what the devil does. But my specific enemy is a Jewish man. I'm going to kill that guy. And so what we see in the activity of the Old Testament is continuously Satan raising up kings who call themselves God. Now keep that in mind for a minute. You go Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, Antiochus, Epiphanes, all of these guys. They all said they were God. They had a little problem there, a little ego problem. <laughs> well, they, they have an ego problem because they got the devil in them, and he's got an ego problem. And, and all of them are trying to snuff out Israel. But here's why. God promised. The insane part about it is somehow Satan thinks he can overcome God, overcome the promises that God has made. And that's what he's continued to work for, is to overcome God's promises. But we have the clear promises of God, and we know that God doesn't lie. We know that God keeps his promises, that everything he's ever said he'll do, he will do. He's faithful. He's faithful. He's going to bring to pass his promises. So just one under B, the seed that was promised to Adam would now be realized through the bloodline of Abraham. In other words, that man would be from the nation God would make from Abraham. In other words, he's a Jewish man. A Jewish man. And I'll just tell you, this is not going to be popular in a little while, but I'll just say it loud and get it out there for the record. A Jewish man is going to rule the world. His name is Jesus. Just get that on the internet nice and loud. They're going to come find us Who's the guy that said that? And you can, they'll, be look, they'll be looking for the ameners too. A Jewish man is going to rule the world. This is where things are going. God promised it, and that's what's going to happen. And you can't stop it. The devil can't stop it. No nations can stop it. No political organizations can stop it. It's what God promised. There is a seed coming from Abram, from Abraham, who will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And so I say it there in two, that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through this man. The finality of that will be realized when he is ruling the earth from Jerusalem and the glory of the Lord is covering the earth as waters cover the sea. The, the advent of this man's reign upon the planet will be so powerful that it will actually cause the glory of God to cover the earth like water covers the sea. What is the sea made of? Water. The glory covering the earth is speaking of the very atmosphere of the earth. Being filled with glory. That's not figurative. That's talking about this planet. When that man rules, glory is going to cover the earth like a blanket. This is where we're going, gang. This is where we're going. And you have all these times that he's described through the Old Testament as this glorious king, this one like the Son of Man who's enthroned. I mean, we see him in Daniel. We see him in Isaiah. We see this glorious king who's coming to reign. 
We see him multiple times as a judge who is destroying everyone who's gotten on the devil's team. And that's the tragedy of humankind. That people would actually side with Lucifer over siding with Jehovah, the uncreated one. God, uncreated, perfect, glorious, fully, I mean, loving, I mean, just beautiful, exalted, transcendent. That God who desires intimacy with humanity has a, has a plan for all humanity to come into intimacy with him. There is an antagonist, Lucifer, and people actually choose the bad guy. Crazy, crazy. Because he's going to lose bad. And the problem is, humans will join themselves to Lucifer. They will join themselves irreparably to him. And they will come under the same judgment that he has been promised. Again, remember, the destruction was promised to Satan. It wasn't promised to humanity. The nations are supposed to be blessed through Jesus. The destruction is promised to Lucifer. What happens, the the nations join him. And we understand that hell itself was created for the devil and his angels, not people. This is why we've got to share the gospel. Guys, there's good news for I mean, you think about a lost guy. There's good news for you. Sin, curse, hell, all that stuff, destruction, that was never supposed to be your portion. Your portion was supposed to be life, abundant life, to know love, to be free from bondage and chains, to have intimacy with God. That was your portion. That's what God created humans for. Satan has fouled the whole thing up. Don't choose that. Don't choose his destruction. Choose life through Jesus. That's that's it. I mean, it's just simple, simple thoughts. But man, it's so it can get so cloudy and mucked up. And we've got all sorts of polit, you know, political arguments and all these things, and just this crisscross of religions and all this stuff. No, just simplify this thing. God loved people. He wanted intimacy with people. Unfortunately, people chose to listen to the devil. And then God goes, you know what? I'll fix that. I'll destroy the devil through a man. And I'll bring redemption to all people that want it. It's just just not that. It's not rocket science. But the devil's got a great plan of confusing things and all sorts of different thoughts. But again, the scriptures just lay out a story that's just so clear. All right. Flip on over. I'm passionate about this because I'm so burdened right now over the lack of biblical understanding of the story. And we say crazy things now. People are saying crazy stuff. It's all grace. You don't have to ever repent. No, grace enables us to repent. Thank God. Thank God. It's all grace. God would never do judgment. No, he promised he would. I'm thankful that he does. I don't want to be under it. I don't want anyone else to be under it. But thank God that he's a good judge who brings judgment to protect his promises. Thank God. Oh. Look at C. 
You can tell when I'm getting hyped because my voice gets way up here. <laughs> I just had to bring it back down. Right on back here. Let's look at David. All right. Sorry. David. <laughs> God's going to now make a covenant with David. He's going to make a promise. He's coming through Nathan. I love David. David's a goofball, just like all of us. He makes so many mistakes. God loves him, said he's a man after his own heart. I go, I can do it. If you said it about him, then good. No way. I'm not, I mean, I, I'm, I mean, I'm goofed up, but I, he's goofed more than me, so praise God. You work with goofballs. Um, so David sets up the tabernacle of David. He sets up night and day worship and prayer. And he looks at God in a tent and the Ark of the Covenant in a tent. And, he's, and David's in his own palace. And he goes, this is not good. God's in a tent. I'm in a palace. I don't like the inequity here. I'm going to make God a palace. I'm going to make him a temple. And uh, first he goes to the prophet. He goes, hey, what do you think, Nathan? I'm Temple for God, sounding like a good idea. I don't like the tent idea. And, um, and Nathan goes, you're on a roll. I mean, you got the ark in. You got night and day worship and prayer going. This is a good thing. And then the Lord uh, speaks to Nathan. He says, tell David he can't build me a temple. He's a man of war. Tell him that instead there'll be, uh, uh, I'll build him a house. I love the language. David goes, I want to build God a house. And, and the Lord says through Nathan, he goes, no, 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 tell him he can't build me a house, but I'm going to build him a house. And what he was saying was, I'm going to build you a lineage of kings that will come from your line. I'm going to build you a dynasty, David. It'll come out of you. And then he goes, and Nathan, tell him this. The one that will come out of his line will sit upon his throne and he will rule forever. And now what we get is that seed from Abraham, he's not just coming out of Israel, he's coming out of Judah, specifically out of David's line. Let's look at the promise, 1 Chronicles 17, 11 and 12 and 14 says, Nathan saying to David, when your days are fulfilled, that you must go to be with your fathers, I will set up one of your descendants, there it is, the seed again, I'll set up one of your descendants after you, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for me a house and I will establish his throne forever. Verse 12 is so interesting because it has an immediate application to Solomon, who is David's son, who ends up building the temple. But we know that Solomon didn't reign forever, did he? At the very same time that the Lord is prophesying that Solomon will build the temple, he's prophesying of a king that will come from David's line that will reign forever, who will be God's son. And he says, I will settle in verse 14 in my house and my kingdom forever and his throne shall be established forever. Between verse 12 and 14, there's three forevers. How long will Jesus' throne be established? Forever. And where will Jesus' throne be? On David's throne. Jesus will rule on David's throne. This is not a trick question. Was David's throne on earth or was it in heaven? Not a trick question. Thank you. Jesus will rule on David's throne on the earth forever. Oh, praise God. Adam, there's a guy coming who's going to destroy the devil. Abraham, he's coming out of your nation, Abraham. David, he's coming out of your line, David, and he's going to be a king. 
He's going to reign forever. Yes. This is our Jesus. So when Jesus shows up, he's called son of David. The reason why he's called son of David is because the prophecies made to David. And look at Gabriel speaking to Mary, Luke 1. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall name him Jesus or Yeshua. You shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. There we have it. Jesus is the one who will sit on the throne. Now, what's interesting is Jesus comes and he doesn't end up becoming king over Israel, does he? Instead of coming as the conquering king, the one that would sit on the throne in the line of David, he comes as the sacrificial lamb, doesn't he? He comes as the lamb, he sacrificed, he sheds his blood. Why? Because he opens redemption for everyone who would believe. We actually get to get in on the promises that God has made through all the covenants in the past, the promises of Abraham. Paul tells us that those who are of faith in Jesus, they get in on the promises to be blessed. And then Jesus is going to come back. And when he does come back, he's going to fulfill these promises. He will sit on the throne of his father, David, and he will reign. And Jesus was really clear in his earthly ministry. When I come, when I return, when I come, when I return. He talks about it over and over and over. And that's when we get the dialogue about the end times and what it will look like in the earth and what the judgments will look like and what the challenges will be. Jesus will come to what? To reign on the throne in Jerusalem over the earth and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through Jesus. Oh, I love this story. This is the greatest story. I, I, was, I think I told you that last week, but I was breaking it down to my sons and my one of my boys just goes, they need to do a movie about this, Dad. This is, the great, this is an awesome movie. I go, it is. It's better than all of these. Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, you name it. It's better than all of them. It's the best one. There's a king coming. God in the flesh. Jesus Christ, the son of David. He's going to reign forever. He's going to reign forever. Well, when he comes, guess what? The context of the earth will be such that it will be completely enraged against God and against his covenants. This is where things are going. There is, there is a massive sway of the enemy against God's plan and against God's covenants. And when Jesus returns, he is going to have to turn all that around. That's why there is a great and terrible day of the Lord in front of us to make all the wrong things right, to push the usurper, Satan himself, to push him off the planet, to destroy his seed, Antichrist. That's all coming in a day ahead. Now here's the thing. Before the great and terrible day of the Lord, we know Acts chapter two tells us God's spirit will be poured out on all flesh. There's a massive revival coming to the planet. I had a dream this week of revival. It was powerful. Let's give you a snippet. I'm, I'm getting ready. I'm in a, in, a, in a meeting. I'm getting ready to walk up on the platform. As I walk up, the Lord gives me a, a, just a singular word about Jesus. 
When he returns, it was, I was preaching on the day of the Lord and how when he returns, he's going to return as a man fully glorified by the Holy Spirit and reign over the nations. And when I say that, power hits the room. And people go into travails and groans and it just is a, a power explosion. And I know instantly this thing is happening right now. God is breaking forth in revival in a massive way. And I, and I just, my heart was alive with it. I go, oh, it's coming. There is, there's a massive outpouring of the Holy Spirit coming before the great and terrible day of the Lord as a mercy stroke. God's going to make himself so evident to the nations of the earth. Why? Because he doesn't want any to perish. He's not willing that any would perish. He wants all to come to repentance. So he's going to pour out his spirit in mass. And even right now, we're in this time of clemency. We're in a time of mercy where the Lord is beckoning through his church, come, be reconciled to God, be reconciled to God. And people are imagining that the delay of the Lord's judgment equals that he's passive. And they'll begin to say, well, where is the promise of his coming? Where everything's continued the same since the beginning. And when they're saying peace and safety and pushing off the mercy of God, judgment will come. It says like a thief in the night, like we talked about two weeks ago. The day of the Lord will come with fire. Now here's the thing. We have to get in mind the broad narrative so we understand the storyline. And I want to take you back before the garden to the fall of Lucifer. So look at Isaiah 14 right there in your notes. We're just going to dial in on these last two verses in this last few minutes so we understand the activity of the day of the Lord what the Lord's doing in it Isaiah 14 the prophet is prophesying to to, it's actually a twofold prophecy to Lucifer and Antichrist simultaneously he's actually prophesying to Antichrist and speaking to Lucifer Antichrist will be a man who is indwelt by Satan. Satan will indwell this man. Through Isaiah, here's here's what the Lord said, verse 13. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne. I want you to think about that for a minute. My throne above the stars of God. The stars of God are are the angels. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. This is speaking about the heavenly Jerusalem. Because I will sit on the highest places in the throne room of God. That's what Lucifer was saying. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Get the picture. The heavenly throne room. The new Jerusalem where the Lord is enthroned. And Lucifer looks on the throne of God. And he gets in his heart instead of the wonder and awe of God. He gets in his heart jealous desire. He says, I want to be in that throne. I want to sit in that seat where Jehovah sits. 
An archangel looks at the throne of God and desires to sit in God's throne. And it's in that moment, listen, there wasn't some big fight. I remember back in the day, I used to do a, 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 like a human video to Carmen's song, The Champion. There's this big fight in a boxing match and all that. If you're young and you don't know what I'm talking about, that's all right. But it was like this big fight between God and the devil. It didn't happen that way. In that instant that Lucifer desired God's throne, he was instantly banished. There was no fight. The uncreated God doesn't have to fight with archangels. He's running on the power that God gives. He's nothing more than, well, he's more than, but he's like the Duracell bunny. He's running on borrowed power. God doesn't have to fight with that. God banishes him instantly, but here's what I'm trying to get you to see. The whole fight is because of an archangel who desired to be in the place of Jehovah. Man, I looked at that freshly this week and it was instructing my heart about human ambition and our desire to get any kind of throne and the throne doesn't have to be even a place of authority, just the one up. Going for your own. Going for that one up for you. The better for you. And man, I just was recognizing that, that satanic impulse that's in the heart of humanity, those lusts that plague us to desire ourselves, the better for ourselves. Instead of Jesus, he came and he became a servant. He's the most high, but he comes and humbles himself to the lowest place. See the difference? That, that sway of the enemy is always trying to push us to get more for ourselves. Jesus has come and be the servant of all. Let the last, let yourself be the last, because the last will be first. That Luciferic influence is, I want to be better. I want to be more. Can you imagine? This whole fight is about an angel who looked on the throne of God. Think Revelation 4. He said, I want that throne. So when we get that serpent possessed by Lucifer in the garden, and he starts trying to talk Adam and Eve into something, what's he trying to do? Gain authority. He's always trying to gain authority. Why? Because he's always trying to make himself God. And the whole concept of human worship and, and music and all that stuff, he's fighting against anyone that would worship God. He always wants the worship. Why? Because he wants the throne. Look at the answer to Satan's rebellion. 2 Thessalonians 2. Remember what God said to Lucifer in the garden. Remember, there's a man coming. He's going to crush you. He's going to crush you and your seed. Paul, he's, he's in 2 Thessalonians 2, he's, he's affirming to the, the Thessalonian church about the details of the day of the Lord. He goes, let no one in any way deceive you. It will not come. The day of the Lord will not come unless the falling away comes first. And it will not come unless the man of lawlessness is revealed. 
the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Is that not crazy? Antichrist, at the end of the age, he is going to go into the temple and sit in the temple and call himself God. What did Lucifer want to do? He wanted to go into the heavenly throne room and sit on the throne and call himself God. Antichrist is going to operate exactly in those satanic impulses in the, in the, the biggest way he can. And it's occupying that place in the, the human temple where the, the Holy of Holies, where only God's presence is supposed to be. He's going to go in there and declare himself God. It's a mirror of what Satan desired in the fall. Look at verse 8. Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. All Jesus has to do is show up. And Antichrist is destroyed. All he's got to do is breathe. I mean, it's just akin to not even having to lift a finger. Jesus will come and destroy him with, I mean, as minimum effort as you can imagine by the brightness of his appearing. Just the glory that comes off of Jesus will see this this man destroyed. So that's Antichrist. He's destroyed in the day of the Lord. Jesus will come destroy Antichrist Satan will be bound, the scripture tells us, for a thousand years in Revelation 20. And then we get the finality of Satan's destruction just prior to the great white throne where he's thrown forever in the lake of fire. That seed from Adam, that seed from Abraham, that one from the line of David, that one is coming. He's going to destroy Antichrist in the great and terrible day of the Lord. He's going to destroy Antichrist, bind Satan, and then ultimately cast Satan into the lake of fire forever. This is the story, guys. Get the picture that there's a big deal unfolding. God's activity in that big deal is set. It's fastened. He doesn't change. He's going to see these things come to pass. Our Jesus is the victor. He's the conquering warrior. I love Isaiah 42. says he is going to come like a, a man of war. He's going to cry out like a woman in labor. I mean, he is going to come with fire and ferocity like has never been seen before. Our Jesus is going to win. He's going to win. That's what the great and terrible day of the Lord is about. God keeping his promises, driving the enemy off the earth. This thing's in front of us. It's coming. For the redeemed, it's, a, it's an exciting day. There'll be massive challenges. I'm not, I'm not in any way negating that. There'll be massive challenges. There'll be massive satanic attack. There's going to be massive uh, judgments that God releases on the earth. And he's doing all that to remove the gray areas. Because at the end of the age, it will be, who do you say that I am? 
That question Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? That will be the key question. Is it me who's God or is it Antichrist that's God? Who do you say that I am? As the earth and the context of the earth gets difficult, the gray area will go away and you get to either choose life with Jesus or death with the enemy. That's what's going down. Our challenge is this, getting it out of the cartoon state in our mind (laughs) and recognizing this is the program that's unfolding in the earth in the days to come. Amen. Amen. This is the way the Bible lays it out. We need to anchor to the truths of the scripture and then prepare our hearts to live in a manner that says, you know what? I believe you're coming, Jesus. How then shall I live in light of the day of the Lord? Amen. That's what we're gonna look at next week. The the practical application, how to live in light of the day of the Lord. All right, amen. Let's stand.